Aloha, my name is Maya Sutoro. I'm a peace educator and professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. I'm also the co-founder of three nonprofits, Seeds of Peace, the Institute for Climate and Peace, and Peace Studio. This is something new. With this podcast, I'm so pleased to bring you conversations with change makers and influencers from the front lines of our communities. I believe their voices will deepen our curiosity and conviction and help us to consider things we haven't considered before. They'll help us be innovative in our thinking. And although their opinions in no way represent the organizations where I work, I'm really excited to share them with you. I feel certain they'll help us refresh our gaze, revisit our assumptions, and take action in brave new ways. Listeners, let me tell you a little bit about James Koshiba. In 2015, frustrated by the explosion of houselessness in Hawaii and dwindling compassion for those on the street, James pitched a tent in a large urban encampment and forged relationships with people experiencing houselessness. He later became a supporter and student of Pu'uhonua Owayanai, a self-organized village of more than 250 people living unhoused at the Waianae Boat Harbor. Through these relationships, he began to understand houselessness as a problem of severed connections with family and community. He co-founded Hui Aloha to demonstrate how rebuilding community with those who are marginalized is key to solving some of our most persistent social problems. Today, Hui Aloha partners with people on the street to launch service projects in their communities, reconnecting them with housed neighbors and helping both housed and unhoused people find healing and purpose together. Hui Aloha is now working to build affordable homes for those who cannot afford housing in Hawaii, which has the largest gap between housing costs and wages of any state in the nation. Prior to Hui Aloha, James co-founded and was executive director of Kanu Hawaii, which worked to build a movement for sustainability. He was born and raised on Oahu and spent several years on the continent earning degrees from Brown University and the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Welcome, James. Thank you, Maya. James, I'm really grateful to have been invited by you to spend time with unhoused folks here on Oahu who have been working hard to keep our beaches, our public parks, um, the bathrooms clean. For reasons I'd shared with you before, I felt intimidated at the prospect of connecting with houseless folks. It was as though the thin tarp of the tent was an impenetrable barrier for me, and I didn't know how to move past it. And I longed to help, to understand. And when I expressed that desire to be a solutionary, you wisely told me to hold off on solutions and just spend time connecting and listening. And that was good advice. And um, in my short time with you and Hui Aloha with the Waimanalo Ohana and the Pu'uhonua Ovainai. I've learned a lot about not simply the struggles and strengths of many of the community members who have been living unsheltered, some for a long time, but also about how uh, to organize and how to rebuild community from the ground up. So Jay, thank you for the opportunity uh, and thank you for being here to share some thoughts and stories with our listeners today. Oh, happy to be here. First, would you please share a little bit about your earth and water and what has nourished your sense of home and brought you to your current purpose? Sure. So for me, my interest in homelessness really goes back to the last person in my family who was homeless or houseless. And that was my great-grandfather. His name was Bunkichi Hota. And he came to Hawaii in 1890. And he was 14 years old. Uh, He came to work on the plantations. I think unlike some other folks that were immigrating to Hawaii at the time, 
he was leaving Japan behind because he'd had some pretty terrible experiences there as a child. And so he arrived in Hawaii in Kahului, Maui, and he worked on the plantation for all of three days. Uh, he learned pretty quickly it wasn't exactly as they'd advertised it in Japan. So he ran away from the plantation, and somehow he made his way from Kahului to Hana, which if you know the geography of Maui, it's on the other side of the island. In those days, he must have made that journey by foot or horse or carriage. But he ended up in Hana, and he was Hanaid, which is the Hawaiian word for adopted into a family there. And he lived with them for 10 years. It was a Hawaiian Portuguese family. Um, he lived with them until the age of 25. And then he returned to Kahului and met my great grandmother, who was just getting off the boat herself at that time. And that's how our family started in Hawaii. I thought about that a lot as I was watching um, homelessness explode in Hawaii around 2007, 2008, 2009. And as I saw both public attitudes and the government response to homelessness change, there was a lot less compassion, um, a lot more um, policies being put on the books to criminalize homelessness, um, to prevent people from sitting or lying on sidewalks or being in parks after hours. It bothered me thinking about how far we'd come in just over a hundred years. My great-grandfather's experiences was really remarkable. I mean, when you think back to that time in history, if he had gotten off the boat anywhere else but Hawaii, you know, he may not have survived. I mean, the 1890s, uh, the U.S. Congress was reauthorizing the Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, South Africa was just setting up um, kefir districts and the beginnings of apartheid. Anti-Semitism was a, a term that the, the language was being kind of, you know, coined at that time in Europe, and here he is, he checks all the boxes for the least desirable demographic in society. He's homeless, he's an immigrant, he's a teenage boy, and he doesn't speak the language, doesn't know the culture, and he's adopted off the street by a family and lives with them for 10 years. I mean, I don't know where else in the world that happens, but Hawaii. That's a powerful and beautiful story, and I'm thinking about the Waimanalo Ohana, and you know, the word Ohana, and the the expansive sense of family and how families are messy and, and, and varied, and, but here there is that capacity to embrace fully distant others. Mm -hmm. And you have expressed great love and gratitude to Hawaii for that reason, um, thinking of it as a very nurturing and healing place. And you told me that the value of Hawaii is the capacity here to build unity from separation mm -hmm. and fracture. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to ask you, what have you learned about building community through working with Twinkle and Auntie Vina and other organizers and leaders in these houseless communities and villages? I guess what I've learned from spending a lot of time with folks on the street and not just out at Puhonua or Wainai, but in, in practically every encampment that I've uh, spent time in, is that folks that have nothing or next to nothing materially are often the ones that are most familiar with and most deep in the practice of trying to survive and thrive through relationships versus transactions or having enough money. Of course, they don't have enough money to get all the things they need. So folks on the street are adept at surviving and thriving by building relationships with each other. Puhonua Owainai and the village that Twinkle has built out at the Wainai Boat Harbor is, is the gold standard. It's the most amazing example of a community built from the ground up and built among people who often arrive at the boat harbor on the worst day of their life. They 
may have lost everything. They may have just been evicted from their home. They might have just been released um, from prison with nothing, you know, literally no possessions um, to their name. And Twinkle will take them in, um, sit with them, listen to their story, and find a place for them in the village, both a physical place for them to pitch a tent, but I think more importantly over time, a place, a role for them in the village where they can contribute to things like um, keeping the common areas you know, clean or tending to the garden that the village has, several gardens where they're growing their food, or pitching in on community service projects to the wider community, taking care of the public park next door to um, their village, or you, know, you mentioned cleaning the bathrooms. Um, it's often our houseless neighbors that are cleaning the park, public park bathrooms because they depend on it. And so um, that's one of Twinkle's gifts is she builds a village by creating a sense of home for folks and that safety, healing, and purpose that comes from uh, reconnecting with people and feeling like you're contributing to something, you're a part of something bigger than yourself. I've learned an incredible amount um, just being a part of that village, watching Twinkle, supporting their efforts to find a permanent home for themselves, to buy a piece of land, to build houses for their people. But the house building part is, is the easy part. It's the building community that's really tough. There's so many lessons um, from that village about how you build community from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, I think it must require deep levels of acceptance, one, but also a really powerful strength-based approach that honors each person's labor, contributions, gifts, and sees people in a very deep way, I imagine, past their suffering or their struggle or their addiction or whatever problem mm -hmm. is being faced at any given moment and kind of sees their potential and demands that they try to live up to their potential to some degree. Mm -hmm. I know that Twinkle is taskmaster as well mm -hmm. and and believes in folks and asks a lot of them mm -hmm. in the way of contributions of time. Can you give us a little more, you know, information or some some stories about um, people in the village that help us to understand perhaps what brought them there, their struggles and strengths? Mm -hmm. Sure, I was thinking about this actually, and it's funny if you meet a person for the first time who is houseless and you ask them, why are you out here? Or what brought you out here? Um, you'll often get responses like, oh, I'm out here by choice, or I made bad decisions, or I'm not a good person, I'm just an ex-con, or I'm a junkie or a chronic, that's why I'm out here. But as you get to know folks and you dig a little deeper into the stories, you can see both the, the, the deeply personal and also systemic reasons why people end up on the street. So a couple of examples, you know, I was, I was thinking about a friend of mine, um, he's not from the village, he lives in Waimanalo Beach Park or used to live in Waimanalo Beach Park. I had asked him this question, um, why are you out here? And he gave me the answer of, well, I'm a chronic. Um, I've been using for many years and that's why I'm here. And as I got to know him better, you know, he shared with me that he had lost his son, who was three years old at the time, a decade ago. And his son had drowned um, while they were at the beach and he blamed himself for his son's death. He never forgave himself. It destroyed his family. And um, it was after that that he started using. That was his way of, of medicating. It's not as simple as, well, I'm just a chronic. Mm. That's why I'm here. People that say, well, I'm, I'm choosing it. You dig a little deeper, you know, and you find out that, well, when we first got evicted from our house, we tried to go to a shelter. If you've never spent time in a shelter, if you've never tried to stay in a shelter, you'd be surprised by the conditions in a shelter. They're really difficult places to manage, so this is not at all a pointing fingers at the 
folks who operate shelters. But you know, you try to imagine 300 people crammed into a warehouse, no privacy, bed bugs, and there are people in there that have serious challenges. You know, you might be bunked up right next to someone that has a serious mental illness or is it has a deep addiction or is coming out of their deep addiction. And it's a pretty, it can be itself a traumatic experience for folks. On top of that, uh, most people don't realize that shelters, many shelters require you to be out of the shelter during the day. So you can sleep there. You have to be in before 7 p.m. You can spend the night there, but you have to be out by 7 a.m. So you spend the whole day outdoors anyway, and then you come back in to sleep. So it's a pretty challenging situation. And if you've been on the street for any amount of time, you know, with all your belongings, maybe you have a pet, maybe you have um, a partner or, um, a, you know, some people that you're close to that you trust, you can't go into a shelter as a group. You go in as an individual, you get placed wherever there's space. You can take the equivalent of two suitcases full of belongings and that's it. So you have to leave a lot of your stuff behind. Most shelters don't allow pets. And for many folks on the street, you know, pets are like family. And so it's a big decision to go into a shelter. Mm -hmm. And then you have 90 days in a shelter typically to find housing or for them to help you find housing. And as you know, there's just not enough truly affordable housing in Hawaii. I mean, we're, as you pointed out, we're living in one of the most expensive housing markets in the nation, in the world, where competition for space is fierce. And so people exhaust their 90 days and they'll end up back out on the street and they'll be worse off than before because now they don't have their pet, their connections, their belongings. So when someone says, well, I'm choosing to be here, there's that kind of story behind it too. So. It's so much more complex mm -hmm. than people understand. Mm -hmm. And people do, I think in their minds, oversimplify this issue. And that's part of the bias that comes in and, and part of the challenge of building and finding solutions. Because what you described to me, I can see would not work for many people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I want to ask about the pandemic and what has been the hardest part of working with these communities and dealing with the uh, attendant challenges in building community and family uh, at a time of, of separation and distance. Sure, well, there were a couple of kind of macro things that were happening during the pandemic um, that caused a lot more people to end up on the street, right? So despite the eviction moratorium, people were being evicted, especially folks that were in sort of tenuous housing situations to begin with, you know, mm -hmm. in Hawaii, We've got a lot of families that are doubled or tripled up in one home. Not everyone is on the lease necessarily. And so landlords, once the pandemic hit, they really wanted to, they were, people were afraid of disease spreading. So, you know, they were trying to thin out the number of people in homes and families themselves, you know, if they had, had maybe welcomed in, you know, other people to stay in a pretty crowded situation, were also afraid. So a lot of those folks lost their housing. Um, during the pandemic. You had shelters that were trying to decrowd during the pandemic. And so the capacity of shelters, there's already not enough shelter space um, for folks in the islands. And so a lot of folks were discharged from shelter. The same thing was happening in jails and prisons. You had them trying to decrowd. And so um, any nonviolent offenders were getting early release. There's not a good system. There wasn't before the pandemic and there isn't now a good system for helping people transition from incarceration back into a community or even a stable you know, living situation. So a lot of those folks went straight from jail out into the street. So you had encampments swelling and um, we were seeing it as we did our outreach and community building on the street. The positive side of the pandemic was people really did pull together. I mean, the community, both our, our houseless neighbors on the street and housed people, 
uh, really stepped up and the generosity of the people of Hawaii was on full display. People were, were coming down, helping feed folks during the pandemic, um, providing things like hygiene supplies. Um, we saw you know, just a lot more of that kind of activity. And then um, folks that were living on the street also did their part. I mean, one of the first things that the city did at the time, the city and county of Honolulu did at the time, the early days of the pandemic was they closed all the parks and they shut down all of the public restrooms. They, where there were gates, they locked up the bathrooms. If there weren't gates, they boarded them up. And that caused a panic on the street because folks were obviously, they're like, where are we gonna use the bathroom? There's a pandemic, we can't even wash our hands and stay clean now. You know, is their only source of fresh water a lot of times for people living in parks. And so we went to the city and said, you know, this is not only inhumane, but you're creating a public health hazard here. What's it gonna to take to get the bathrooms reopened? And they said, well, we just don't have the staff and the supplies to keep the bathrooms clean during the pandemic, that's what we're afraid of. So we went back out to our houseless friends and said, look, we know that even before the pandemic, a lot of you were the ones cleaning the, the bathrooms. If we can get donated supplies, cleaning supplies, would you be willing to form teams and clean the bathrooms and sanitize them on a, at least a daily basis? And they stepped up and did that. Um, we got at its peak, they were, we called them bathroom brigades. There are more than a dozen bathroom brigades, teams of people in parks across the island who were cleaning and sanitizing the bathrooms every day. So the city agreed to reopen the bathrooms. Um, we had those brigades going. So just another example of how people were really stepping up to do their part during the pandemic. To be honest, the most challenging part was dealing with government. The government response was reactionary. It ended up being punitive. Enforcement actions in parks increased during the pandemic. People were getting cited for being inside of their tent without a mask. Each of those citations had a mandatory court appearance. And if you miss a court date, then that's you know a bench warrant for arrest. And so people were getting sent to jail. A lot of folks in encampments were being sent to jail for park violations, for mask violations, and then coming back out and losing everything. I mean, even some of our bathroom brigade volunteers who were going to the parks to clean the bathrooms were getting cited as they were going into the park to clean the bathroom or coming out of the park after having cleaned the bathroom. And then during enforcement actions, they would have all of their cleaning supplies taken, confiscated, because that's what happens during a, you know, a quote unquote sweep during these enforcement actions. And so the community was rallying to provide these donated cleaning supplies and materials. And then you know the next day we'd show up and it, it'd all be gone, it had been confiscated. And so it, it felt like a battle um, throughout the definitely the early months of the pandemic just to allow the community to respond and contribute in the way that the community was willing to do. You know, both, again, house donors and supporters and houses folks on the street trying to do their part. You know, it's better now. It is yeah. better now, but um, it was a slog yeah, that to figure out a really, way to work with government. really difficult. Mm -hmm. And you're bringing to mind, I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit about those roles, the challenges of working with government during that time. And I want us to encourage all kinds of civic participation around this issue. And, and I'd love for you to speak a little bit about a variety of roles as you see it. You know, what, what should um, government be doing, activists, mental health professionals, social workers? How can people use their gifts and networks in the community to not only help and do no harm, but mm -hmm. think about uh, potentially systemic changes that will enable uh, stronger beloved community? to mm -hmm. be forged. 
Yeah, you know, I bring it back to the thing you started with, which is that tarp that feels like such a, a heavy separating, a heavy barrier for folks. And I felt that way too, before I started spending time on the street and just talking to people. But I really think I, so much of it comes back to that, both decision makers, policy makers, people that are running programs, social service programs, and then just, you know, ordinary folks like you and I, you know, who live in our neighborhoods and, and see people living in parks, you know, in our neighborhood park, trying to bridge that separation. And it is daunting. And so, you know, I, I'm not saying everybody should just walk into an encampment and try to make friends, although that's sort of Huiloha's model is we'll take a coffee traveler and just go tent to tent and offer people coffee and have conversations with people. So we've learned that that is, you know, it's possible to do it that way. But um, for a lot of folks, it might be more comfortable to go into a shelter and help serve a meal. But I think that the key to bridging that divide is going beyond just serving the meal and being there as an act of charity and really to try um, wherever there's space to have a conversation and just ask what brought you here and what keeps you here and, and you know, how, how is it? How are things going here? You know, what are some of the, the challenging things about being in the shelter or being on the street? And you might get some of those cursory responses that I talked about, mm -hmm. um, you know, like, well, I'm choosing to be here or I'm just a chronic. But if you come back a second time, and mm -hmm. I think that that's the other key is showing up more than once, mm -hmm. any kind of consistency, um, people will start to trust and open up. And that's when the, the bridging happens. In that bridging and in that shared understanding, you know, so many of our solutions are based in misunderstanding and more importantly, are not informed at all by the experiences and voices of people on the street who are living it. So we've been trying to solve this problem. Government, um, social service agencies, charitable organizations have been trying to solve this problem without enough of that voice and experience at the table. And so I think that's the other big part of it is uh, bridging that divide is inviting houseless folks or people who are experiencing or have experienced homelessness to be at the table when we're talking about solutions. Because otherwise the solutions are driven essentially by neighborhood complaints. I mean, mm. you know, people that are fed up with the, the folks across, you know, the street. And it might just be one person in an encampment mm. who is mentally unstable and creating a big mess, you know, hoarding things in the park and yelling at folks as they walk by. But when patience runs out, then that's when the calls get placed to the mayor's office or the city council member's office. And that triggers a response of, well, you know, get these people out of here. I just want these people off of my block. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what most people don't realize is, and I, again, I didn't realize it before I spent time on the street, was you do that, people get swept from one block to the next. But all we've done is deepen the problem of homelessness pass the problem on to the next block, and it'll be back on our block because at the root of solving this problem is rebuilding those connections and actually finding or making space for our people. There's just not enough space for, again, in a, in a place that is one of the most expensive markets for space in the world, there's not enough space for a lot of our people, especially people who are at the bottom of the income scale, who have faced multiple challenges in life. I think part of the problem may be just that people feel overwhelmed too, because they fear that if they connect with someone, they hear about the challenges, that they might feel some sense of responsibility, some kuliana, some um, desire to fix things, mm -hmm. and they might not know how to do that mm -hmm. because so many of the problems are systemic and mm -hmm. large scale. Mm -hmm. I wanna 
therefore just ask you about whether you believe that real transformative, larger scale change on this issue of houselessness is possible here in Hawaii, and then I think perhaps modeling that for other communities? Mm -hmm. Or do you think that really we have to address this on a very hyper-local, incremental, you know, small person-to-person way? How do we also perhaps arrive at a societal shift in, mm-hmm. in mindset? You know, is that is that possible when it comes to this issue? I believe it is, and I'll try to connect the dots from kind of the what feels incremental and micro to the macro. So that that bridging that we just talked about, it plays out. It makes other systemic solutions possible. If it's about connection and space, um, the big barriers to that are often play out at the neighborhood level. So if you go to any community meeting, you know, in Hawaii, on Oahu, we have these neighborhood boards, which are like, you know, the kind of smallest unit of government, right? And um, if you go to any neighborhood board meeting, the first half of the meeting might be spent um, by people testifying about how fed up they are with homelessness and the homeless people in their park or on the sidewalk in front of their building. And then the second half of the meeting, um, and I've been in meetings that actually played out just like this, the second half of the meeting might be spent um, discussing a new affordable housing development and people protesting the development of affordable housing in their community. And we can't have it both ways, but it's that exact mindset that we'll need to change in order for at the project level and the policy level for um, solutions that are about making space and rebuilding connection to actually get the resources and support that's needed. And it does start with that connecting. And so I'll, I'll also say that I've seen people's minds change during those board meetings. Part of what Huyaloha does is once we build relationships with folks on the street and there's a sense of community in an encampment and a sense of um, pride and purpose in an encampment, so maybe they're the ones taking care of the park, then that gives folks the confidence to show up at a neighborhood board meeting themselves. And for many of them, it's the first time that they're there and they're shocked and hurt to hear about how, quote unquote, the homeless are talked about. And it takes a lot of courage, but when they speak up and they say, well, actually, you know, I live in that park, and that problem you're complaining about, about the vandalism in the bathroom and the trash piled up, I actually know who's doing that. And it's not someone that lives in the encampment. It's someone that's coming in at night and doing that. Mm. And I'd love to be part of the solution to that. My neighbors who live in the park are willing to form a little neighbor, neighborhood watch and do that. Mm. And I've seen people who started out in a neighborhood board meeting there to just slam the city and demand that the police come in and sweep people out soften. And then it's also really hard when you're sitting across the table from someone and you're talking about housing being built for that person to say, well, I don't want that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Not only do I not want you in my neighborhood, but I don't want a house for mm-hmm. you either. Because that happens because of the separation, right. the dehumanization, the right. othering, right. and the just distance yeah. that, that we build between ourselves mm-hmm. and, and folks. I want to speak to what you just mentioned, that courage to sort of step into these leadership roles, to step into the light, to raise your voice when for so long you have been in the shadows and kind of unseen or folks don't want you to be seen, Mm -hmm. sweep away the problem, that sort of thing. Um, There are so many stories, it seems, of courage and resilience in the stories of the unhoused communities where you work. And so I wanted to ask you about your commitment to the folks in these spaces mm. and what 
uh, that commitment has taught you about yourself mm. and how you stay brave and hopeful in the midst of great trial and tribulation and, and what we can learn as listeners, you know, about how to stay courageous mm. uh, from, from these, you know, frontline communities. I sound a little bit like a broken record, but again, to, to peel back that tarp and make the connection, that's the first courageous step. And not just between housed and unhoused folks. One of the big lessons I learned from watching Twinkle and her village at Puhonua, Owainai especially, was just how valuable it is to have some trust and some relationship with the people who live around you. And it does take courage, even just to get your, know your own neighbors. I mean, um, what I realized in watching them was that, you know, I live in a, in a small apartment building of 20 units and I didn't know anybody that lived in the building. I knew one other, you know, family that lived in the building. It was interesting because as that was dawning on me, this was a couple of years ago when uh, Hurricane Lane was a Category 5 hurricane and, and the initial forecast was that it was going to come right through Honolulu. And so people in my building were, were panicking. They were really afraid. I'd been thinking about Twinkle and her village and I went to throw out the trash on this day when the forecast had come out and our trash area, which was just trash cans with lids, was a total mess. Somebody, I think, was afraid that we'd have to evacuate and so they thought it'd be a good time to like take out all of their, you know, there was like a, a, a broken printer and a bookshelf and like it was just piled high with, with stuff. No one could get in or out. And this was all gonna turn into like projectiles if the hurricane did hit, right? So I was like, I was outraged. I, I had just joined the board of our condo association, our apartment owners association. So I emailed the other four members of the board and I said, look, this is, you know, crazy. Um, what are we gonna do about this? And I managed to work everybody into a tizzy and they said, well, we'll call the property management company. We'll have them put up a sign there. We'll have them send out notices to everybody, warnings, and let's send a special notice to the guy that we know probably did it. And at first I was all about it. I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, that's the way we got to do this. And then I thought about Twinkle in the village and I thought oh, this would be so much better if we just knew each other, trusted each other enough to talk to each other about it. And at that time, like I said, I didn't know anybody. And this is not my way because I'm an introvert. So back to the courage and the fear, going door to door is my worst nightmare. But I, I forced my Hanai son to go with me and we bought a bunch of chocolate chip cookies and we went to each um, door in our unit. We gave away some cookies. We had a short conversation. And at the end, you know, I said, oh, and by the way, we got to keep that trash area clear. I mean, even if a hurricane wasn't coming, we have kupuna, you know, older people that live in the building that have a hard time getting in and out of there as it is. Um, and I tell you, after that, that trash area was pristine. And when I reflected on that, I thought my first non-courageous response was to turn to a third-party institutional actor, my property manager, the property management company, to solve the problem for me, to save myself the discomfort of having to go talk to folks directly. And it was no different than the person who sees people living in the park across the street and says, well, I'm not gonna go over there and talk to those guys about the trash or the noise at night. I'm gonna call the cops and have them be swept out. Mm. And I've been working on this issue for a few years already, but that was still my knee-jerk reaction. And I think that's all of our knee-jerk reactions. Yeah. We're so used to depending on institutions and either money or institutions to solve the problems for us versus the connecting and community, mm. you know, because it is uncomfortable. I was worried about that, about how much I was committing myself to by going and doing that. But the thing that surprised me was it didn't take that much time, actually. It didn't take that 
much energy. It was like a box of chocolate chip cookies and just that one round of conversations did so much to build trust. It took a little bit of effort and a little bit of courage. Didn't require a lot of time, as much time as I was afraid that it would. And it ended up saving us as residents money, actually, mm -hmm. because we weren't depending on the property management company, which would have charged us for putting up signs, mm -hmm. for sending out notices, for facilitating the association meeting that guaranteed would have happened afterwards and people would have come to complain. And the parallel to our dependence on government institutions or police to solve these problems for us is it's a much more efficient and less resource intensive way to solve problems too. Just like our association saved money, um, our community be saving money too, taxpayer dollars, if we can solve things as a community together. So Excellent yeah. points. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So I want to ask you about the future mm -hmm. and the future of Pu'uhonua and, and the future of these communities. What are you looking forward to in terms of the future of this village and and what's happening now and can you share with us a little bit about some of the shifts that are taking place and allies that are helping mm -hmm. to deepen humanity and community in in these spaces yeah so twinkle on that village of puhono owaina really demonstrate what's possible you know and hui aloha just tries to take their model and replicate in other places but to provide a little bit of context, you know, what Twinkle does, the way she builds her village is she puts people to work on projects both inside the village and outside in the wider community that are service projects. So the houseless people of Puhonua Owainai lead beach cleanups, they'll clean up illegal dump sites that are, you know, scattered up and down the Wainai coast. Um, I already mentioned they take care of public parks and the bathrooms. They also do outreach to other houseless encampments. So they have an outreach van. They have a dedicated crew of about a dozen folks, mostly wahine, mostly women, who go out and do outreach because the village, their village gets a lot of donated clothing and food. So they'll go and share it with other um, houseless folks in other encampments um, across the island. And they've been doing this for years now. They open their donation tent. They have a donation tent that looks like a, it's organized like a store. You walk in there and there's, you know, racks of clothing and a section for toys and shoes. They open it to the wider community. So anybody that needs anything can come in and take what they need, whether you have a house or not. They've made themselves such an asset to the wider community that there's been an outpouring of support. So a couple of years ago when the state was gonna evict them off of their current site, where they are because it's state-owned land. Really, it was the wider community that rallied to their defense and said, you know, you're not gonna sweep these guys out of here because they're, they're a valuable part of our community. And then when Twinkle and other village leaders announced plans to find land and purchase land for their village, again, the community stepped forward and hundreds of people donated. And so the village, they raised one and a half million dollars and they purchased 20 acres of land last year, just before the pandemic hit. And so now they've spent the last year preparing that land and preparing plans for building permanent homes for their people. But going back to the you know, problem of connection and space, that village demonstrates how to do it. I mean, they have earned their right to be recognized as respected and valuable members of their community. And so you know, they're not gonna face the, kind, the same kind of not in my backyard opposition that um, other folks face. They're not going to be swept from place to place. And they've been able to, you know, um, amass the resources they need um, to build a home 
for themselves. And so that is really inspiring to mm -hmm. me. Um, I think about my great grandfather and the kind of place that he, where would he end up today? I don't think a shelter would be a good place for him, but Puhonua Owaina, that village would be a place that he would, he would thrive. It's still home to that same kind of spirit, that same aloha that he, that he was met with when he arrived, you know, over a hundred years ago. So we're just trying to build off that model. And so when we go out to an encampment and help them get organized and start doing service projects in their neighborhood, we're trying to build that same momentum of aloha. And it's been working. I mean, in the encampments where we've worked, you know, I've mentioned those neighborhood board meetings where people, people's minds are blown. They start to change their attitude. They start to come out to service projects and kind of work alongside houseless folks, you know, during park cleanup days. And we'll see. We, we have a much more supportive uh, city administration this time around. So we're looking at unused land or underutilized land as places to build villages for people, for people to build villages themselves and to be an integral part of the planning and the fundraising for their own village. I'm really hopeful, actually. It's gonna have to happen one community at a time, and it's gonna start with that micro you know, level, pulling back the tarp and building the connections. But once you start that flywheel turning, it's pretty remarkable what can happen. Well, I'm excited too. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for the work and for sharing opportunities with me and others to be a part of this beautiful burgeoning story. And thank you for sharing with our listeners today. We've covered a lot of ground <laughs> and it still feels like just the beginning of a very important conversation. And I believe that the work that's happening now will have a lasting legacy and broad application that it will guide and mobilize and inspire other people. And um, our listeners, if there are ways that you can support, if you know of a plot of available land, if you want to contribute your energies, your resources, if you want to start a conversation with coffee, please let us know. I am very inspired by you to confront some of the big complexities and, and challenges around this issue. In all of these stories, I hope to discover and uncover reasons for renewed optimism and new pathways for healing, growth, transformation at the individual and societal level. And I feel like you have helped us with that today. So many of us have very narrow umbilical stories. Mm -hmm. And when we look at the houseless, it is easy to uh, sometimes keep those stories simplistic. Mm -hmm. And there is bigotry and, and we have to stop with the dichotomizing of us and them and grow perspectives that might broaden our commitment, but also allow for us to see mm -hmm. um, more fully and richly these important members of our community. So thank you for helping us see differently and to lessen the mistrust, mm -hmm. fear, and difference. Join me for future conversations with really thoughtful, creative people who are helping us to wash our eyes and nourish a sense of possibility around difficult social challenges. Thank you so much for listening. Please share and stay in the conversation.